The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome again, everybody, and uh, really a happy time to see Kamala Masters and Steve Armstrong back here. For more than 15 years, they've been willing after, you know, a difficult time being in charge of a retreat for nine days, leading the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective's uh, annual summer retreat, which is usually in mid-June, and then they're willing to come Sunday after that nine-day retreat and be in front of a group of people and share the Dharma, share the teachings of the Buddha. So it's really great having you back. Most of you know Stephen Kamala, but just for those who don't, uh, long-time teachers in the Western Vipassana tradition, Steve was one of the early members of IMS, first as a staff member, then a board member, now both of them as core teachers uh, at IMS, one of the main Vipassana teaching centers, this one in Massachusetts, and also teach at Spirit Rock and have their own uh, teaching center really in Maui uh, and are developing a Dharma sanctuary up a little bit off the shore, a couple thousand feet up the volcano where they're creating uh, a practice place for the Maui community, but also a place for uh, long-time retreatants to come and practice uh, with them. So hopefully it's been more than 15 years, hopefully maybe another 15 years. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here, both of you. I'm Kamala. Is this on? Yeah. And, um, Boy, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed at seeing a lot of people I know here and a lot of people that are new faces and also um, just a lot of love for Mark and Wynne and the whole group of people who are supporting this center. It's amazing what has happened here because of all of your support and because of the wisdom, compassion, and integrity of Mark and Wynne. And um, I just can't tell you guys enough how much I love you both. <laughs> so Steve is going to uh, give a Dhamma talk this evening, and then I'm going to be available afterwards for responding to any of your questions or your comments about the Dhamma. So I'll just hand it over to Steve. Helmet on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello. Um, as Mark mentioned, we just finished a retreat, a nine-day retreat, uh, earlier today, and the topic of the retreat, or the basis of the retreat, and the uh, source for all of our Dharma talks, our Dharma talks during the retreat were really a commentary on. Uh, an admonition, uh, an encouragement that was written by one of the elder uh, Burmese monks that were that was one of the major forces in the founding and the training of teachers to teach in the West. So, in a very direct way, Mahasi Sayadaw, who's a monk, who was a monk in Burma for the last century. 
uh, was responsible for teaching people who ended up being the first generation of teachers here in the West. So we could say he's kind of our uh, foreign grandfather of, of this tradition. So he wrote a um, what was called an admonition, uh, kind of an instruction or uh, an encouragement, really, for uh, people who came to his meditation center in Rangoon, where I, I lived for a number of years practicing there as a monk. And I thought it was a very good um, overall view of the teachings of the Buddha and a very inspiring, actually encouraging uh, comment. So I've adapted it to our language for us. And uh, even though it was originally for uh, monks and those who are doing long-term intensive meditation practice, I'm going to try to comment on it tonight as a uh, support for our household practice. So let me read it first, and then I'll pick some areas uh, of it to comment on so that you can get a flavor of the, uh, the Dharma from Burma and uh, I'll let you figure it out. <laughs> so rather than admonition, which sounds a little bit like, you know, I'm going to admonish you. Mm -hmm. I called it encouraging words. <laughs> I'm going to encourage you. Okay. Do good deeds. Avoid causing harm and purify your mind. These are the teachings of the Buddha. It is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth, and one's humanity. Living in harmony, too, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Love, solitude. Be willing to learn and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhamma. Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and the body, their impermanence, their unreliability, and their insubstantiality. Such wisdom leads to lasting peace. This sanctuary, or here in Minneapolis, this center, should be a quiet place where we strengthen faith, practice generosity, live in harmony, and calm and liberate the mind. Cool, huh? It's kind of comprehensive, but kind of like right, right to the point. You know, and he, and he starts by grounding it all and acknowledging these are the teachings of the Buddha. Do good deeds. Avoid causing harm. And develop your mind. Doing good deeds, we know what that is. It's, well, we could look to the Buddha's teaching. He's great for lists. Ten good deeds, the ten meritorious deeds include, of course, living in harmony, practicing generosity, developing your mind, 
being reverent and respectful to those who are elder, senior, wiser, Listening to the Dhamma is one of the ten meritorious good deeds to do. And when you practice the Dhamma and you develop some goodness, some wholesomeness in your own heart and mind, then sharing that with others, sharing the merit for the goodness of the work that you've done, this also is one of the ten good deeds to be done. Why is that important? You know, we we do a lot in our life. And some of it's good. Some of it's good for us. Some of it's good for others. But a lot of times we just, well, dissipate our energy in mindless, meaningless, superficial activity. When it would be not much more than just a shift of intention and what we do is is beneficial to someone. So it's something to think about. What is it that you intentionally do as a good deed each day or regularly, weekly, as a practice to uh, support or to further your own dharma development? Avoid causing harm. Primarily this means to live an ethical, moral, uh, intentional life, being very careful about the motivation behind your speaking and acting, and to try as much as possible to let your uh, words and your actions spring from a thought of non-harming and caring for others. And if we do, we'll have no cause for remorse, or regret in our relationships with others. Now, if you just take a survey of, of the challenges in your life, in your own interpersonal life, you can see how much, how much difficulty and challenge and upsetness and processing has to take place or occurs because of saying something carelessly, speaking, acting in a way that causes others harm or misunderstanding. And it's not insignificant. And so if we, if we do really take it upon ourselves to act so as to, non, to not cause harm, we'll minimize uh, the suffering that comes from the carelessness of our speaking and acting. Purify your mind. This is the, maybe the uniqueness of the Buddhist teachings. A lot of spiritual traditions have the teachings of be good, don't be bad. <laughs> or, you know, live ethically, be kind. But the Buddha added, purify the mind. And this really points to the meditative practices that you learn here. Because while we can exercise control and restraint and often kind of be a good person, our minds can be driving us crazy with harmful thoughts. We might not be saying it, but we're thinking it. <laughs> or we're wanting to do what we exercise, have to exercise restraint for. So to purify the mind is to really look at where that's coming from in the mind and to address it there 
before it ever gets to the tip of the tongue or coming out of the behavior uh, through our body. So to purify our mind has two elements. One is to calm the mind. And we calm the mind by practicing mindfulness. All of the teachings that Mark and others offer here are mindfulness practices. Just being present with yourself in this moment and each moment. That's the first. And uh, to the extent that, of course, we can develop a continuity to mindfulness, then the hindrances are temporarily put aside. If you don't have the defilements or the hindrances in the mind, what a relief. Ah, no irritation, agitation, anxiety, frustration, disappointment, depression. Wouldn't that be a relief? Okay. But conditions change. You know, you can't always rely on being able to be mindful. And so a second training, the development of wisdom, really looking at the way things are so that you understand how the mind gets entangled in what causes, <coughs> what pushes your buttons and begins to decondition the tripwires that are in your mind that cause you to say and do and think in ways that cause you and others harm. And so this second practice of not just purifying the mind temporarily through mindfulness practice, but purifying our understanding through carefully watching the way things arise and pass away. And if we do that, practicing Vipassana or insight, we will begin to understand very deeply the way it is. The way it is in our mind, the way it is in our relationships, the way it is in our bodies. And out of just uh, sheer or mere self-care, we choose, we will choose and learn to live in alignment with what we see is the way things are. Because if we see the way things are and we say, no, 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 I'm not going to live in alignment with the way things are, I'm going to struggle against the way things are. Well, struggling is not fun, it's painful, it's, well, stupid. <laughs> Really? I mean, if you had a choice, why do you choose to struggle? Well, habit. We'd rather be right than free. Did you ever get in an argument with somebody? No, of course not. But did you ever get in an argument with somebody and notice that you'll hang on to your opinion the way it should be, the way it was, the way it's going to be, rather than just let go and say, you know what? I'd rather be free of suffering than to be right. Yeah, we've all had that choice and we've all made the wrong choice a lot. Right? I mean, why do we do that? Well, not enough insight. Not enough depth of understanding the way things are. That's why we need to practice with us. While training of the mind is important, It's difficult, it is impossible, we could say, to undertake this path of awakening alone. And you folks here are extraordinary, extraordinarily lucky, fortunate to have such an active, interested community and leadership team here. Because 
It's a challenge. It's a difficult. It's a difficult path of awakening. And to know that others are on the path, walking the path with you, supporting you on the path, sharing dharma experiences on the path is a great benefit. And it only can happen if we bond as a community and, well, establish centers like this and support teachers like Mark and others. This takes a tremendous amount of generosity. And Mahasi Sayadaw is, is forthright in saying it's generosity that you can rely on for your happiness, your wealth, and your humanity. I noticed a couple of years ago, a few years ago, that when I walked down the street in some of the cities that I visit, and there were homeless people on the street, I always felt a little uncomfortable. It's like I felt you know, a little guilty or sometimes a little afraid. They look a little scary sometimes and kind of walk on the other side of the street and you know, just, just didn't know what homeless and panhandlers didn't know their life and just, it just was a little bit, well, I was you know, a little stressed, a little fearful, a little upset, a little you know, doubtful about, you know, why it's all happening and what should I do. And, and at some point I realized that is my suffering. That reaction is my suffering. It's not the people on the street suffering. That's my suffering. They got their own suffering. But my anxiety and fear and, you know, confusion and whatnot, that's my suffering. So I said, only I can do something about that. And then took it upon myself to approach homeless people and to really connect with them and to find out what, you know, just how it's going for them. The last one that I asked, rainy, early morning, some Sunday morning, I can't remember, it was in Portland, rain, pouring rain, and I went out for breakfast, and there's somebody standing on the street, drenched with this cardboard sign, you know, homeless, blah, 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 whatever. And so I stopped, and was getting my dollar or two for him. And I said, how's it going today? He says, oh, it's a little slow today. Uh, I don't know what that means, but there was a connection. You know, and what I've realized over the few years that I've been making this a practice is that when we stop and connect with one another here or with homeless on the street, what we offer, maybe a dollar or two, or five dollars in the, the pot outside, whatever it is, but what we really are giving is respect, love, recognition, acceptance, fearlessness. That's invaluable. You give it to yourself, and you give it to the other. That's how generosity is the source of your own happiness. There's more that could be said. The whole talk on generosity will be online in about uh, three weeks. All the all series of talks that are commentaries on this will be online mid-July by the time we get home, or when we get home. Kamala then went on to speak about living in harmony and how that real is a real refuge in our life. How living according to the precepts, as many of you know, is a real refuge. It's a refuge for our heart. 
Because if we speak and act carefully, we're not going to have to deal with remorse of having done and said painful things. Or guilt. Remorse and, and, and regret more commonly felt as guilt. <laughs> what a jerk I've been. It's painful. And so to make an effort to live ethically with a real care and attention to the intention with which we speak and act is, as Mahasi Sayadaw acknowledges, a real refuge. It also makes you pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. You know, we all come to this practice, maybe initially, because we know what destructive states of mind are. We have all been caught in rage, jealousy, anger, frustration, and worse. They're painful. And they cause harm to ourselves and others. Physical, mental, emotional harm. Even just the practice of care and attention to how you speak and how you act can do so much to relieve you of destructive states of mind and to relieve others from your infliction of destructive states of mind on them. I want to move on to this next area because it's a little, it's easy to understand for monks in Burma a thousand years ago, it's a little harder to understand for Western lay people in the 21st century here in Minneapolis. Isaac Sayadaw goes on to say, let there be only a few things that you attend to. Anybody successful at that yet? <laughs> a few words that you say. Forget Twitter. <laughs> and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Where is this guy coming from? Well, in the monastery, I went to his monastery at Mahasi Zaito's monastery in Rangoon. And, you know, you go in, it's a, it's a practice monastery, it's an intensive meditation center. And, you know, you get there and they give you, they sign you your room and uh, they show you where the dining hall is and here's the meditation hall. And here's the schedule. Wake up at 3. Sit and walk alternate hours until 11 at night. And I looked at that and I said, ooh. Okay, okay. I went to see my teacher and said, I think there's misprint here. <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. He says, you can sleep all you want. Between 11 and 3. <laughs> it was a challenge, but later, not, not so much of a problem. The quantity of hours is not the issue. It's not the point. The point is, don't fritter and sleep your life away. Make best use of the time you're awake. Whatever you need, sleep, of course. We live exhausting lives. But if we are able to let there be only a few things that we attend to, we'll have more energy for practice. Now, what's he talking about? Let there be only a few things you tend to. Because believe me, in a monastery, you can get just as busy with, you know, filling your water bottle, washing your robes, 
you know, adjusting your cushion, you know, connecting with uh, some supporters, and you know, it, it can be busy. It's not busy with the same things that we're busy with, but you can fill your life with busyness, fill your mind with things to be done, the to-do list, which never shrinks, changes, but never shrinks. One way to look at your own life and to make this a practice is to do a survey. Just take a good, honest look at your life. What is it that you're doing now, habitually, repetitively, obsessively, that really does not serve you? That just does not serve your household needs, your civic responsibilities, or your spiritual aspiration. And I'll give you a clue where to look. How many times a day do you have to read the news? You know what? You're sitting at the computer, just click, you click on Yahoo, you click on New York Times, whatever, whatever your news source is. How many times do you have to read the same headline? Check it out. Is that really serving you in any way? Considering what the news does to your mind <laughs> and the reactions that it provokes. Is that helpful? Is that serving you? Is that helping you stabilize your mind and be happy? Yes, we want to be informed, of course. But do we need to be obsessively tormented by the news? It's a choice we make every day. So let there be a few things that you attend to. It's great to have responsibilities and to meet them with energy and interest. But as you know, when we extend ourselves too far, take on too many things, and Kamala will confirm that I don't practice this one very well, and take on too many things, you know, then we get tired. And when we get tired, we get more difficult to live with <laughs> and everything else that goes with it. But to not be busy does not mean you're a failure, you're alone, you're lonely, nobody needs you, nobody wants you. It means you actually know what's important in life. To take some time to be alone. And a few words that you say even in the monastery when, or in the meditation retreat center when you're practicing in silence, it's difficult to go a whole day without talking. Right? So I was in the monastery in Burma and I'd been practicing for you know a year, a year or two, I don't remember how long. And one of the, one of the monks that was about my age there who was helping to run the center, he said to me one day, he says, did you ever go a whole day without talking? Like you've been keeping an eye on me or something? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh wow I couldn't say yes because I didn't really know so I said oh, uh, well uh, I'll try <laughs> and so I said okay for the next three days I'm going to not talk and I failed every day <laughs> I thought I, there was some reason for me to talk every day but it was about six weeks later that some friends of mine came uh, over to the monastery from the states and they were going to practice for a month or two Actually, it was Joseph and Sharon who came over to the monastery, and they were going to practice. And when they came, old friends of mine, and we just spent a lot of time just talking and catching up. 
And one of the other monks who had been practicing with me over those intervening six weeks said, came to me the next day and said, Oh, I see you're talking again. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, you haven't said anything for six weeks. And I said, I haven't? I, I didn't notice. It, it was just, there was an intention in the mind. There was an aspiration to not speak. And of course, when you're in meditation practice, of course, you can fulfill that a little easier than living a domestic career. But nevertheless, if you truly aspire to minimize your distractions, minimize your excessive, unnecessary talking, let there be a few things that you do, a few things that you attend to, a few things that you say, a few hours that you sleep. If you truly aspire to do that, it will happen to a degree. And if you make it a practice and, and refine your practice, you can carve out a lot of space of mind, a lot of space in your day, a lot of space in your calendar for being a little more present with yourself, you know, taking the time to be to develop the mind. Then he says, love solitude, be willing to learn, and seek good friends. So I looked at this, love solitude and seek good friends. And I said, now wait a minute, is that contradictory? <laughs> Solitude does not mean feeling isolated or being lonely. It means being able to be alone with yourself. Without Twitter, without email, without phone call. And to learn to love that space, to really care for what's going on in your own mind and body when it's not stimulated, connected, communicating, and to get familiar with that because it is so nourishing of our heart. The Seeking Good Friends, of course, is a, a, easy to do in Minneapolis. Come to Common Ground. People who come here, like yourself, are interested in some some degree of waking up, care, uh, connection, love, whatever it is, and that can be a good, they can be good friends. And yet, we all have friends, we all have people we call our friends, but I would ask you to consider, are those whom you consider good friends on Friday and Saturday night? really benefiting you. We call them friends or acquaintances. We spend time with them, social time even. But are they really bringing out the best in you? Are they calling forth growth, maturity, understanding in you? Because these, we know, are the source of happiness. And we might have to be honest with ourselves and reevaluate who, re who is really a good friend. Not that we abandon all of our old friends and acquaintances and whatnot, but, you know, we're growing up. 
And just because we're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or more, like some of us are, we have not stopped growing up yet. And so look at your life. What is it in behavior, in things, in people, in beliefs that you no longer need in your life? Maybe useful in an earlier time of your life. Maybe necessary in your early part of your career or when you first moved to Minneapolis, whatever. Maybe really necessary, urgent. But we outgrow things because our direction of life changes, our capacity to do things changes, our beliefs change. And yet we often carry around a lot of old, well, baggage. Physical, mental, emotional, psychic baggage. And the energy it takes to carry that baggage around is the energy you need to practice in the present moment to be aware of the present moment, to grow in the present moment. And if we're depleted because we're carrying around a lot of old obsessive, <coughs> obsessive habits, thoughts, beliefs, behaviors, friends, acquaintances, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough energy, we don't have a clear aspiration to seek the good within ourselves or to develop the potential within ourselves. And this is what Mahasasayadaw says. These are the six factors that contribute to good dhammas. Good dhammas mean uh, experiences like being happy, being content, feeling connected, feeling like your life is meaningful, worthwhile, valuable, making a contribution in your civic uh, society that you feel is good for the community, your family, your community, the larger the environment of the earth. When we feel that connected and that good about ourselves, calm in the mind, not stressed, not angry, not depressed, these are good dhammas. But not only these. The, the, the development of the mind through meditation practice leads to good dhammas. And I, I'll just add here that the highest good dhamma or the best good dhamma or the uh, subtlest and most enduring happiness is Nibbana. Nibbana, the Buddha said in the Third Noble Truth, is the end of suffering. Whatever, whatever it is is causing you some unhappiness. Whatever it is that causes you some unhappiness, to not yet be content is a source of suffering. Nibbana is the end of that suffering. And Nibbana, I want to just mention, is not only for people to strive for at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for monks and nuns in Burma living in caves and remote hermitages in out in the forest. It's for you living in Minneapolis in the 21st century. It is not that far away. It does take practice. It can be realized. It is a reality to be known and can be accessed through the practice that you learn here. This is a good dhamma. Don't consider it beyond your lifetime. Don't consider it beyond your reach. But hear about it, practice for it. See what's possible. As Mahasi Sayadaw 
How long am I supposed to talk? Well, we need to end around 8.30. Okay, we're going to skip right over this. <laughs> I'm just getting to the good part. Continuous mindful awareness, as if any of us could do that, leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and body. Their impermanence, unreliable, and insubstantiality. And such wisdom leads to lasting peace. Nibbana is the lasting peace. It is the more continuous the mindfulness you can develop. Through whatever trainings you learn here, the more continuous you can develop that mindful awareness, the more you're going to understand about the nature of the body and the nature of the mind. And when you deeply see into the nature of the body and the nature of the mind, you're going to see three things. Everything about it, about the body and mind, is fleeting and impermanent. You're also going to see that everything about the body and mind is unreliable. Because it is constantly changing, you can't rely on it to provide your happiness. Stable, enduring happiness. And the third thing you'll see about the body and the mind is it's not very substantial. This body can fall apart quickly. We've all been sick. We, any one of us could go for our annual exam tomorrow and get a diagnosis that would change our life. Body and the mind, and the mind too, really. They're just not substantial. They're not enduring. It can be frightening, it can be terrifying. But when we see that, and we grok it, we really take it in, and we learn to live with this understanding, we will free ourselves from the attachment that keeps us away from Nibbana. Lasting peace. Okay, so this place, Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, should be a quiet place sometime. <laughs> I've been here on Sunday morning when the kids come in and got to do their singing, you know? That's good. That's cool. And there's a lot of quiet time, too. Just before we came in to speak, there was some quiet time. Take advantage of the quiet. Quiet time. Where we strengthen faith through listening to these teachings that are offered here, through practicing generosity, through communing with others who come here. This this strengthens your faith in the Dharma, the teachings. It strengthens your faith, faith in the teachers that you have here. It strengthens your faith in yourself to undertake these practices and gain the benefit for yourself in this very life. It takes faith. This place is only possible if we all practice generosity. And I know this whole place was built with generosity and the teachings are sustained through generosity. I hope it's a source of happiness for you. Because what you have here is uh, rare and precious. Hopefully you can live in harmony here and in your lives at home and in your communities. And if you undertake to practice here, you will in time come to a degree and liberate your mind. Let this be the place 
the source of the inspiration to live in harmony, to practice generosity, and to develop the mind. Now, now, Kamala will ask you any questions you have about what I said. <laughs> We're going to share that. <laughs> yeah. So if there's any comments or questions about anything I said or anything I didn't say, go ahead. See if you can. This is called Stunt the Teacher Time. There's a question over here. I'm sure Kamala can. <laughs> she has the family. Oh, well, in case I forget, I gave a whole talk, in case I forget to tell you, I gave a whole talk on just attachment at uh, the last retreat, and you might find it on Dharma Seed in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. We'll have a link uh, on our blog to their talks from the last retreat. Yeah. Um, I have a family. I have four children. Steve helped me raise one of them, and I we have five grandchildren. So I, I know what you mean about feeling the attachment to children, to family. You know, when we're in the place where we're at as human beings, it's really a mix, and I think we have to accept that. It's a mix of feeling attached to our family. Really, we suffer when there's changes within the family. We suffer when they part from us or we part from them through death or through distance. It's just something that we have to deal with in life as human beings. Uh, it's important to understand how we feel attached, where we feel attached in terms of our relationships. It's important also to feel where we can experience true unconditional love for our uh, people who are close to us because that is very much a part of our being human also. It's not all attachment. There's a lot of metta or unconditional love in our relationships. And sometimes the attachment stands out more than the metta because attachment is so painful. Uh, attachment is the pain that we feel when we're separated or when things don't go our way or when we don't feel confirmed by people around us. And uh, we're human, so we feel that. And it's good to accept that as being human. That stands out a lot more clearly to us than the metta because metta is so refined, unconditional love is a very refined feeling and I hope that you will take advantage of the classes that are given here so that we can learn how to develop that 
And we actually learn that there's a lot of that already happening in our hearts. We already do feel that. And it's uh, if we look deeply, there's a lot of unconditional love in our relationships with our family. And we'll, we'll get that confirmed once we do the metta practice or really understand what metta is and see that, oh, I feel this already in my life. We feel that we can offer our love, offer what we can to our families and to our friends with no attachment to result. This is unconditional love. So be willing to accept the mix of life, attachment and metta. This is all part of being human. Yes. Yeah. Um, just be present. Just be present. <laughs> okay. Um, well, originally I've been like stripping myself of a lot of issues that I've been or like dependencies or some things that I've been doing and and that's helped me, but then there's things that really hurt me that have like been amplified because of uh, maybe because of that. But I feel like I feel them a lot more in my my uh, I feel like reactive. I want to be reactive because I'm feeling them so strongly. And um, and I like I don't like it. So why am I trying to Sure, myself of my 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 vices and my release because they seem to help me. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it's not easy to exercise restraint. You know, when we have habits, whether they're physical habits, mental habits, emotional habits. And we've relied on them to as a vehicle for getting along, getting along or getting on in life. And then we see, you know what, this is not so skillful. It's causing me harm or it's causing others harm. And we decide that we really want to try to stop. You know, and we say, okay, woohoo, put on the brakes. <coughs> well, it's not that easy just to put on the brakes or to let go to, to stop doing things. And it puts a lot of pressure on our mind. You know, we, 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 get, we get irritable. You know, you just, just just try to stop smoking. You, know, you try to stop smoking, and it's like, God, you get so irritable. Our youngest daughter just has recently tried to stop smoking. She stop smoking. She was unbearable to live with. But it's actually good for her, right? Stop smoking. The Buddha said, if by giving up a lesser happiness, something that makes you happy, but maybe not so skillful, a lesser happiness. In order to have a higher or better happiness, the person who is wise chooses the greater happiness. So we may be giving up, letting go of behaviors, patterns, whatever, that actually makes us happy. But we give it up because there's a greater happiness to be obtained by doing that. It doesn't mean that it's going to be painless. 
know, sometimes it's really hard to make a transition to a new, new kind of behavior, whether it's physical, mental, or uh, otherwise. And yet, you know, if we truly understand the benefit to be gained, and we have the commitment, and we make the effort, it'll happen. So we do have to endure the discomfort, the dukkha, first noble truth. We do have to endure the dukkha, the pain, the insecurity, the transition of, of, of growing up and maturing, really maturing, and making wiser choices in our life. So I encourage you to, I'm glad you are on the journey and making the changes. And even though it's painful and it makes you miserable and you feel like shit, <laughs> we'll all turn to compost someday and help other things <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going through like uh, um, some emotions um, from an experience of one of my best friends um, died Friday night with two of his children. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel sad, mm-hmm. but I'm not suffering. I don't feel suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel as connected to them as I ever was, but I don't feel attached. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I mean, a lot of people talk about that attachment. And I mean, I, I guess I'm just trying to um, explain what I'm going through with this. and. That um, you know, I'm like he's gone, they're gone, mm-hmm. but I'm still connected, right. and it doesn't feel. Um, I'm sad that he's gone, but I also, I mean, I like driving down the road, and and he's still there, and mm-hmm. the experience of our time in this mm-hmm. existence is still there. So, mm-hmm. um, I guess I just wanted to share that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks. When we have a, a shock to our relationships like that provoked by death, of course it's going to be a range of emotions going to run through for a day, a week, a month, a year, whatever. Whenever you think of that person or you remember something that you did together, just in that moment, wherever they are, wherever they've taken birth, whatever condition of life somewhere they may be experiencing, just wish them to be happy. And share the merit of your Dharma practice with them. Maybe, you know, we we don't understand how our sharing the merit of our Dharma practice reaches someone in other planes of existence, if there are such things, but you know, well, we invest in a lot of things that we don't know what the return is going to be. <laughs> so, you know, might as well do that one too. <coughs> Other comments, questions? Come on. If you don't have questions for us, we'll have questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> we can end with a little meta. Okay.
Anybody have something just on the tip of their tongue? Okay, me, just go ahead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have another two hours? <laughs> <laughs> There have been huge books mm. written on the topic of mindfulness since the time of the Buddha. Many of them. Recent ones out in the last couple of years. But in its most naked, experientially raw form, mindfulness is remembering that this moment is all there is of life. This is it. This moment. The past is a thought in your mind. The future is a fantasy in the present moment mind. All there is is remembering this moment of life and being there for it. Remember, this is it. This is, this is your life. You know, you're not doing anything else on Sunday night. This is it. You know, whatever you think you've got coming in the future may never arrive. If you can be here for this moment, you'll be mindful. If you forget this moment, you're not mindful. So we could say, mindfulness is not forgetting. In that regard, Steve, I, I've been facing the times when I've got to make a decision about whether I release my dog from her current body. And it's really interesting to think about it because she's still in pretty good shape. She's got a lot of problems. And so I look at her and I realize that she lives in the moment. She has no idea, I don't think, no idea about tomorrow. So whenever I decide that it's time to give her the injection, she will just cease from living this moment. And, uh, she won't be missing anything. She doesn't know there's a tomorrow coming. And it's kind of interesting to watch that whole process and think about it. So I just kind of want to bring in because that mindfulness is just for her. Treats. <laughs> to us and lived with us until it was 25 years old. The last, was it two and a half years? Mm -hmm. The last two and a half years, she didn't walk. We took care of her. She had, uh, she had, uh, first she broke her hip, <coughs> then she had some kind of seizure, and she didn't walk after that. But for two and a half years, we took care of her on a, on a, on a, on a pad in the house and helped her with her uh, eating and her bodily functions. And it was a burden that was so valuable to do. Unbelievable how much you can learn 
about yourself in your relationship with a pet, and especially a very demanding pet. We got time for one more comment. Yeah, comment question. Yeah. Uh, just to follow up on uh, you know comment about attachment. I've come to wonder, you know, is it kind of boiled down to what you've been attached to? Some things you want attached to, and making the choice. Nope, not attached to that. Yep. I mean, is that kind of on the right track? Or? You know, sometimes it isn't attachment. Sometimes. It's wise discernment. When you're making a choice, it's not exactly attachment to this because you're choosing that. It's not exactly because you have attachment to it. It's discerning wisely which will be of benefit and which will, or the greater benefit, and that's what you choose. So um, there's another word in Pali, in the Pali language, the ancient language that the Buddha's teachings were handed down in. And that word is chanda. Chanda is different from tanha. Tanha means grasping, clinging. Chanda means the wish to do something. And it can be ethically um, wholesome or unwholesome. And so we have this wish to do something. And it's our discernment that decides whether we're doing something that's beneficial or something that's harmful. So it, it's probably not attachment. Yeah. In, oh, please. Hi. Um, I really appreciate your saying that, that, um, that really deep practice is available for everyone you know, here now. And I really appreciate you made that very strong in your statement, and um, you say that there's an end to suffering. And sometimes I feel that the Buddha should have had a fifth noble truth that says, after the end of suffering, now it's like a whole new thing. Because it's like a whole new kind of living, a whole new way of living. So this is really an end. It's like a big, big, big beginning to a whole different way enjoying life and I'm feeling like I listen to compassion. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Hang loose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we say in English, I want to be free. I want to be happy. I want to be enlightened. I want to be kind. I want to be loving. That wanting is not attachment. That wanting is really an aspiration. And the way you can tell the difference, as Kamala was mentioning, is how does it actually feel in your heart? You know, when you want, you know, you want something that's unwholesome, you know, you just want, you got some strong lust or desire for chocolate or sex or something, and you just like, you know, that's wanting, you know? That, that, that feels like that. But then when you say, I want to be more loving. I want to be more spacious in my mind. I want to have. I want to be more harmonious in my relationships. It doesn't have the same feel at all. It's got a more expansive and open, uh, <coughs> inspired feeling in the heart. And so, even though we say I want, 
not all wanting is attachment. Some is really an articulation of an aspiration, something that's wholesome to want. And so we wouldn't call that attachment unwholesome. We call that wholesome. Time's up. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much for being here tonight. And uh, you can also go to the web, their website, vipassanameta.org, uh, yeah. and find out more about their Dharma activities, their teaching on Maui, and uh, links to some of their uh, talks, I think, are also on the website. Um, and uh, you might also consider the retreat next summer. And uh, we always have the Twin City Vipassana Collective's uh, flyers here at the center on the shelf in the lobby. You can just plan. It will be somewhere in the middle of June, I, I believe, again next year, right? Uh, I think it's a little earlier next year. I think, but, you know. But anyway, we'll have that information probably in March. And uh, consider doing one of the longer retreats. Don't be shy about that. Sometimes people feel like it's so easy to think, oh, my practice isn't good enough to do a long retreat. But where's that coming from? <laughs> <laughs> so I just encourage people, especially people like Tom and Steve are available, experienced teachers like that, to take advantage of it. And many people, senior leaders in the community, will attest to the value of doing the retreat. Many people have done many of the retreats and have really benefited from it. And you can go other places and practice with Tom and Steve. They're off to... Cloud Mountain in uh, Washington State to teach a nine-day retreat. They teach there usually every year. They usually teach at IMS, as I mentioned, at Spirit Rock, just north of San Francisco every year. So you can generally find something around the country if you can't make the June retreat here in Minnesota. And there were quite a few people who only had done three days or a weekend, and they just did the retreat, and everybody made it. <laughs> Nobody left. <laughs> yeah. And once again, thank you so much thank for you. being here and supporting the center. Thank you. Thanks so much. Good night, everyone.